Happy Mother's Day again. Happy Mother's Day to my amazing wife as well, and uh, to my, my mother who's probably watching live back in England, and uh, my mother-in-law as well. Happy Mother's Day. Um, <laughs> just make sure I get all the Mother's Days in. <laughs> Can't forget. Can't forget. I made that mistake before. <laughs> so we'll, we will be doing uh, Mother's Day portraits at the end. So if you want to hang around, if your mother's not with you, you can hold up a little sign like this or just smile and look nice. You can do different things. Send your mother a nice picture um, and, and tell her that you love her. Um, so what are we doing today? Well, uh, we are continuing our Exodus series. So we started um, our Exodus series. We did four weeks right before Easter. And then we took a little break for our Easter series. And we're jumping back, and we jumped back in last, uh, starting last week, and we looked at uh, the, the Passover. Uh, but today we're, we're looking at chapter 14. And let me just recap quickly, just in case you're catching up with us, you're not familiar with the story of Exodus. What we've learned so far in the story is that at the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, God sent Joseph to Egypt to save them from this famine. And it was this amazing salvation that God brought to a nation that was a pagan nation, and, but he sent his people, his uh, instrument, um, Joseph and his family end up moving to Egypt, and there's this good history of God rescuing them and them actually having favor between each other. But at the beginning of Exodus, we, where we pick it up, a lot of time has passed, and that good history has been forgotten. And the, the Hebrews are multiplying, they're growing, they're spreading out, and the Egyptians are getting kind of nervous about this. And they're living, it says they're living in dread of the Hebrews, and so they enslave them. And they make them to do, uh, to do forced labor, forced work, and they mistreat them greatly uh, to the point where they start killing all of their firstborn baby boys or all their uh, baby boys that are born because they want to maintain military uh, dominance uh, over them. And so uh, we see this terrible evil happening and then they cry, the people cry out, the people cry out for uh, deliverance from their oppression. And then God raises up, answers their prayer by raising up a deliverer, Moses. And Moses comes on the scene, and he's rescued at a young age as well from this genocide and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter uh, uh, takes him as her own, essentially. So he's raised as an, Egypt, as an Egyptian, with an Egyptian kind of worldview, Egyptian mindset. So he doesn't see the oppression of his own people for a long time. Later on, then his eye, God opens his eyes to it, and he has this heart for justice, for God to uh, set uh, these people free. And so he takes some action into his own hands, ends up killing and murdering an Egyptian and uh, ends up having to flee because of that crime. And he's gone for a very long time. Very, very, a lot of time passes. And then he has this encounter at the burning bush where he meets God in this bush and this God, the Spirit of God is speaking to him through this, this fire that doesn't consume the bush. And God calls him into a mission to go back to Egypt and to free God's people and to oppose Pharaoh. And he accepts this mission. And so he goes back and through the hand of Moses, God's power is displayed in these great plagues, these terrifying things that God does that he inflicts upon the Egyptians to force them to change their behavior, to repent, to turn, and to actually submit themselves to God. And, uh, but they're consistently rebellious and hard-hearted hard about it and won't uh, turn from it. And so it led us to the final plague, which we looked at last week, which was uh, the Passover, and God actually in kind punishing um, Egypt for the crimes that they'd committed against the Hebrews and actually killing their firstborn sons. And uh, we learned about the, the unleavened bread and all that stuff. And that those things are still practiced today by many Jews. And then today, 
We're looking at the parting of the Red Sea. This is one of the most pivotal, you, actually it is pretty much the most pivotal event in the Old Testament. The parting of the Red Sea, the escape through the Red Sea. What we learned in the first three verses that we read is that once they come out of Egypt, they're now free. They're no longer slaves. They have been set free by God, by the hand of God. Pharaoh has been forced to this place of, of letting them go. And they're, they're on their pathway. They're, they're journeying out. And then God says to them, I want you to turn back. I want you to go a different way. I want you to encamp in this particular area on the, on the, sh the shore of this particular sea. What we call the Red Sea is actually the Sea of Reeds. It's a bit of a mistranslation, so it's supposed to be two R's rather than one R's. It's the Sea of Reeds, but that's okay. Not to spoil anything for anyone, we can still go with the Red Sea. It's just a sea. It's a body of water. It doesn't really matter. The Red Sea. And God tells them, you know, go back. You're going the right way, essentially, to get away from Pharaoh, but I want you to go a different way. And if you're, you know, this is not a good strategy. If you're trying to get away from an evil maniac who thinks they own you and wants to come and dominate you, wants to control your life, this is not the smart move. Like, this is the wrong way to go. You're supposed to get as far away, get the you know, body of water between you and them, not where you're trapped by it. Uh, but we're told in the passage that God did this on purpose. This is like a military maneuver. This is God baiting Pharaoh. God saying, Pharaoh will see this because they had scouts, they had people watching the people's movement, getting feedback to Pharaoh. So they would have seen, they stopped. They've gone the wrong way. They're just, they don't know the way to go. They're just idiot slaves who can't figure out how to navigate because what a, you know, they're not good for that. And we know how to do these kind of things. They're, they don't know how to do this. And they're now trapped in this area so we can go and dominate them and recapture them and re-enslave them. That's God baiting, using Pharaoh's pride against him. And it totally works. Pharaoh totally falls for this, this trap. And so we see that God is setting up, God, his people, setting up the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, he's setting them up for a really, really dramatic deliverance. They can't see it. The, pe the people, the Hebrews, they, they don't know exactly how this is going to work out. Maybe Moses has, he has some idea because he's following the voice of God. He's following God's direction. He's got faith. Moses really shines in this moment. The people, not so much, but you can't blame them too much for it. But God is setting up his people. God is making this happen specifically in this way to be as dramatic as possible. God's in control of this. No accidents here. God is directly orchestrating this event to be this way. The escape through the Red Sea is, is, a, is a pivotal moment for God's people because it, it marks them. It, 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 it's an identifying factor for them because from this point forward, as you read the Old Testament, you see them referring to the mighty acts of God. This, this phrase comes up a lot, of, a lot of times, the mighty acts of God. And that refers to all the miraculous things that God has done. But it really is typifying this miraculous event that God has done. That now these are no longer people who are identified by their oppression and identified by their slavery. These people are now identified by the fact that they have a God who has delivered them from their oppression. You cannot underestimate the impact of this event on this people group that now they are known as the people who God delivered through the sea. That is now part of their story, part of their narrative, part of their identity. And it's a dramatic shift. It happens in one foul swoop, this, this, this unexpected turn of events that God orchestrates, that God plans through his power. And yes, it's an incredible miracle. I mean, the, other, the most significant event in the whole, of Bible, the whole of the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the most pivotal, most important event. And this is a close second. I mean, they're parallels, really. They're, they're kind of equivalent events in one sense. The two most important things. They both speak to the fact that God sets people free. 
that God delivers people from evil, that he defeats their enemies, he defeats his own enemies, and he gives people an identity and a purpose that is a permanent identity that you cannot go back to. You can't go back to this old identity. It is a permanent shift, a permanent change. For you. That's what the story is telling to us. It's, it's wonderful. It's amazing if we can understand it, if we can get into it, if we can dissect it and integrate it into ourselves and live into the truth that God wants to teach us through it. Now, these things were written for us to learn from. They're not just events that happened to people long ago. It's not just fairy tales. It's history. And it's, it's the history of God's people. It's just our history too. We're included. We're grafted in. We're added in to this story. So this, this matters to us. So when our backs are against the wall, when it seems like we've gone down a dead end, that even we felt like God led us down that, that pathway, and even those that we've trusted to lead us, and they say they're following God, and they've led us down this dead end. We're trapped. Our backs are up against the wall. We're, look like, it looks like terrible things are going to happen. In that moment, in that exact moment, what we learn, we see, so you see yourself in all the stories of the Bible, and you have to. That's, that's one of the, you, you have to see this about God, but you also have to see yourself wrapped up in the story. You learn this is no accident. This is God's exact plan. This is what God has been orchestrating. What God has, now, it took 400 years to get there. You know, this, is, this is the culmination of all the prayers, all the cries, all the different things are crying out against this great evil, and God took his time. I mean, God's timing is not our timing. It's hard for us to understand God's timing. We wish God would, be, would act in our timing. But, so our plans have to change. Our expectations, what we hope for, and our dreams and desires, those things have to shape and be molded to and in submission to God's plan and what God wants and what he's figuring out. But nonetheless, we see that God has a plan. And his, plan, his plans cannot be stopped. They, stopped. they cannot be thwarted. Why does God orchestrate it in this particular way? Well, in verse 4, it tells us, it says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He says, well, right before that, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So God's not just about doing a little thing or about just sending a message to his own people. God wants to send a message to everybody. That's how this works. So this is God's divine plan. So host, where it says the host, Pharaoh's host, that just means his army. Host just means army, soldiers, fighters, whatever. The host is the army. So all of the, and they do, they, when you read it in the story, once, once, once the chariot wheels start churning in the, in, the, in, the, in the bottom of the sea and then the waters start coming in on them, they suddenly realize, oh, oh boy, we're in deep trouble here. We better turn around. God's fighting for them. He's not fighting for us. Yahweh, the one true God, he's fighting for them, not fighting for us. We better get out of here. We're about to die. So they, they realized but he's saying his God's glory is going to be over Pharaoh and that they're going to know that he is the one true God. Now, why is this happening? Well, because, see, the Egyptians had set themselves up essentially as the owners of the Hebrews. They, they felt like they were the divine state. They were the ones that could enslave others. They owned others. They were the ones that they were superior in some sense. In every sense, they felt that way. God's, God is rejecting that, that ideology, that belief, totally rejecting it, stripping them of all of their power, showing them how evil that is. Because you know, Pharaoh himself believed he was a deity, which is why it was so shocking that his uh, firstborn son died, because that was the first sign, 
that because they, they believed that the, that the heir also was kind of a deity as well because he would replace the pharaoh because it's like this lineage thing, right? So the firstborn son dies. is like, well, this is not good. I thought he was kind of like a, a deity of types. And now pharaoh has been completely crushed. This is, this is a message to the Egyptians. You are not God. Your pharaoh is not God. His son is not God. And they do not own anyone. They cannot own anyone. And this event is so dramatic, so powerful, that God is communicating once and for all. If, it was, if there was any doubt in the Hebrews' minds, these Egyptians, not only will they not enslave you anymore, they cannot. Because their entire military force and their military weapons have been destroyed. Their chariots, their horses, their best fighting men, their, leader, their military leader, they are all gone. I mean, no wonder they're celebrating so much. Because you, you, if you escape, you live in fear, like they, they could come get us. They kind of liked having us. They wanted to dominate us. God's sending this clear message to the remaining, to, to, the, right, to, the, to Pharaoh and his army right before they died. You get the point. The remaining Egyptians, you get the point. But also to all other nations. Because the other nations now were in absolute terror and fear of Yahweh, of his power and what he could do. Don't mess with the Israelites. Don't mess with them. Their God is... Man, when he, when he gets angry, he'll mess you up. He will dominate you and completely decapitate your power and dethrone you. To show, this is a power move. And this, is a dom, this is a power move. This is a dominant move of the God of the Bible. He's not messing around. Once and for all, takes care of it. Now, there could be a question of fairness here. This is in our kind of modern day minds, we might think of this. This question might be rattling around in the back of your head. How can God judge Pharaoh and hold Pharaoh accountable if God hardened Pharaoh's heart in the first place? I'm sure you've asked this question. It's kind of an obvious question in our day and age. Isn't this, how does this work? How can God be just and, and judge and condemn Pharaoh when it says clearly God actually hardened his heart and then Pharaoh did this? Well, a couple of thoughts on this. When you read through Exodus, you actually, before this event, there's, there's three times where it tells us in the text that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. No intervention from God. No, God, God's not tipping the scales or anything in this way. No influence from the divine. Just says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's his choice. He did that. Then you read there are three times that then it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So we can see that any consequence, for God to be a just God, any consequence, any judgment on Pharaoh, and just because it mentions three where Pharaoh hardened his own heart doesn't mean there wasn't more than that. I mean, he had a whole lifetime to change his mind, to turn his heart around, to submit himself to the one true God. Didn't do it. What we see is we see God is a God of grace, a God of chances, a God of, of, of redemption. We also see that when, when people can cross a line and God will give them over to their own desires. But even though God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you know, Pharaoh still had opportunities to take a different course, to, to choose something. Even if, even if you've got a hard heart, you can still choose a different course. Because maybe wisdom can, can sometimes overpower your own, the own emotions of your own heart. But even then, I don't know, understand exactly how all that works, but I know that God is just in this. That God is holding him accountable, at least for those three times where he basically had the choice but said, no, I'm going to harden my own heart. And then God gave him completely over to that. Now, Pharaoh in his hard heart, he now is thinking, he's approached the, the Hebrews. 
They're, they're, they're encamped on the, on the shore of the sea and, and he overtakes them and he's probably thinking, man, I got them. I've got them trapped. I've got them exactly where I want them. I can re-enslave them. I can bring them back. Everyone thinks going to be okay. They're going to take care of all of our affairs. They're going to build our buildings for us and bake all the bricks that we need and all this stuff. And this is going to be great. It's going to go back to the way it was before where we were dominant, where I was God in control of things. It's, it's so ironic because the exact opposite is true. God has Pharaoh trapped. It's the exact opposite. It's not even close. God has Pharaoh trapped in this moment. And it's, it's a real perspective shift that, that in our lives we think things are, we're so convinced something's a certain way. If only we had God's perspective, it's like it's the opposite way, in fact, to what we can see with our human perception. In this, in this act, in, the, in these, these, these activities of Pharaoh, we see the the hardness of, his, hardness of his heart, we see the evil of his own heart. But not only do we see that in Pharaoh, we see it, we see the issues in the, in the, the people's hearts as well, in the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, God's people. We see the own evil and own issues in their own hearts. In verses 10 through 12, what we read there is that the people feared. The people were fearing and complaining and blaming they, they blame Moses. They, I'm paraphrasing, I'm editorializing here, but they basically, they point the finger at Moses, say, essentially, they're saying, we told you so. They even say it would, be better for, it would have been better for us to have remained in Egypt as servants of the Egyptians. Which is nice, you know. It's funny how the language changes, you know. It's not wrong. You were slaves, you know. It's like, well, we like being servants. It's like, I mean, before they were like crying out to be free. Now they want to go back to it. And they blame, they point the finger at Moses. Grumbling and complaining. Now, in one sense I don't blame them for this, but this is, this is, a, this is a common theme now that comes up for, for the people. As they, as they go through, as you read the rest of Exodus, as you read the other books of the, the Old Testament, as you, as you follow the history of God's people, you see this complaining spirit. This hard-heartedness. Not just Pharaoh has a hard heart or a stiff neck. It's God's own people. It's human, human problem. The people complaining. And now, you know, having been a Christian for many, many years and having been in ministry for a dozen plus years, I, I can say, you know, and I put myself in this, I put myself in the mix here too, that as God's people, it's so tempting, so easy to want to complain and whine and grumble about things. You know, it's, 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 it's hard for all of us. You know, we want our circumstances to be a little different, don't we? We want things to work out a little differently. It, it's, it's hard to be happy with all the things that are happening. It's hard to be happy with each other. We want, we want God to do certain things for us. We think God owes us certain things. You know, we've got insecurities and fears. We've got all kinds of things that we might wrestle with. And the deeper, the deeper issue for us is to discern, is to get clarity, is to to look at the own motives of our own hearts before we start pointing the finger. And unfortunately, you know, we can blame our circumstances, we can blame other people, but most of the stones get hurled at, you know, the, the, the figure like the Moses type person in, in the, whoever that may be in the, any situation. That's, that's typically what happens. And sometimes those things are earned, sometimes they're not. All of those, all varieties of those things can happen. But the, deep, the deeper issue for us to learn, to actually learn from this history is to to ask ourselves, what, what, what's actually going on in my, own, in my own heart? Rather than launching a stone or two, before I, before I 
I speak is, is to consider what is going on in my own heart. What is to uncover the fears and the anxieties and the insecurities and all the uncertainties that I have. Because there's, you know, now look, they had a big threat coming their way. They had a big threat coming. They had an army that hated them, people that hated them, that were coming to get them. But, but listen to the distortion they had. Because what do they say? They, say, they basically say it would be better to, you know, we're gonna, basically we're going to die. It would have been better to stay as servants in Egypt than to die right here. Do you notice what's wrong with that statement? They weren't about to die. Because Pharaoh wanted to re-enslave them. He wanted them to live because he wanted their labor. So this is a complete cognitive distortion. This is a complete fabrication of the actual situation. They're not going to die. They're gonna, they might be re-enslaved, but they're actually saying they want that. And they're complaining of Moses for this. You know, we've got we to gotta stop. We've got to do the Jesus thing. Jesus tells us to take care of the log in our own eye rather than worrying about the speck. You've got to deal with that first before you cast a stone, before you point a finger, before you try to adjust somebody else. You've got to look at what's going on. What are the insecurities and fears in me? What am I struggling? What threats do I face? Because anytime, and that's typically, it's so easy to react and respond. I do this. It's so easy to react and respond. Anytime there's a threat, you feel threatened in all kinds of ways. We feel threats of not being included, threats of rejection, being left out, threats of just anything changing. And we've had some big threats, you know, a pandemic, that's a big threat against us in many ways. What kind of threats, what kind of changes coming about? And Moses is the model to us here. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's an amazing model. He, he really outshines everybody who's not perfect. He makes other mistakes too. He's, he's a human like, like the rest of us, but he really shines here. He, he does something incredible. He, he points the people back to God. He reminds them of the truth. You know, he, he says, you know, God's fighting for us. And he says, you only need to, only need to be silent. You only need to be silent. Actually, the, the funny thing about that, that phrase, you only need to be silent, is that a more direct translation of that phrase is keep quiet. Ch changes the, the, the sentiment a little bit, doesn't it? Keep, keep quiet. But Moses is shepherding the people here. And, and this, is, this is something that as Christians, we can all learn from Moses in this. So we need to help, we need, we need to look internally and say, how can I point myself back to the truth of God, that God is fighting for us. God, even if things look impossible, we have a God of the impossible. God can do the impossible. He's done the impossible throughout history. So I can, I, I can remind myself and I can remind others, God's fighting for us. God's plan cannot be thwarted. Yes, there might be trouble, but we, can, we always know that, you know, eat, you know, looking at this story, we can see like, there's dead Egyptians behind us. You know, they're washing up on the shore. Like God's defeated our enemies. It's God, he does the impossible. We couldn't have done that, but he did it. You can remember that. But the other thing that, that Moses does here is he, that he, he kind of shushes the people. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, keep, keep quiet. That's, 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 you know, the way it renders it here is, is, is kind of makes it sound a little nicer, doesn't it? It's like you only have to be silent. But if you think of this tense situation, you've got an army coming at you and the people are saying, it's your fault, you've brought us to this place. And he says, God's fighting for us, keep quiet. You know, there are times when, when you kind of have to be shushed a little bit. You need a little bit of shushing going on. It doesn't feel good, it can sting a little bit. I had this, I've had this in my life plenty of times. Because, you know, it turns out we're not the voice of God. You know that? Not, not the voice of God. So 
Years ago now, about 10 years ago, this came to mind when I was meditating on this passage, times I've been shushed, where I thought my, my voice was more important than it was. Um, I tweeted something stupid. Maybe you've heard of people doing this before. You ever heard of this before? People tweet stupid things. I tweeted something stupid. And uh, Brian Mowry, some of you know Brian, who uh, leads Jubilee Church in St. Louis, oversees other churches in our family of churches. And he called me and he had to shush me. And it you know, stung a little bit, but he was right. It's like, yeah. I, you know, it could have been easy for me to, 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 to have defended myself and say, you're, you're just silencing my voice. You know, I, I should have a voice and I should be heard and not, you know, not being sensitive enough to me. You know, but he was right. It was good leadership. I needed to, to you know, sometimes our, our words are going to do far more damage. And somebody, God sends Moses, Moseses into our lives to, sell us, to tell us, hey, put, put a little bit of a sock in it. Close the hole, you know, mute. Keep silent, keep quiet. That, that, that what you're going to share is going to cause more damage, more harm than, you might, than you're aware of. Oof, that doesn't, doesn't feel so good in the moment, but it's a combination of things, right? It's pointing us to God. Look, God's fighting for us. But we're so convinced sometimes that the way we see things is reality, when in fact it's the exact opposite at times. It's the exact opposite at times. Now, there's a flip side to this, too. There's a flip side to this, too, that people in positions of authority and power, like Moses, like anyone in a leadership position, need accountability, need feedback. So we want to be, we want to be collaborative and mature about how we do this because, you know, Moses made mistakes. I've made my fair share of all kinds of mistakes and leaders need feedback and need those kind of things as well. How we go about that greatly matters. How do we build up? How do we collaborate? How do we want to see things restored? Because think about this, this moment. I mean, this, this chapter ends in this highlight. I mean, I just, I wish and pray and long for these days. So, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, I was, I was meditating on this and just thinking how glorious this is. You know, when you, you, you've got a big threat, big danger. You know, Moses obeys God at every turn and reminds the people, shepherds the people, like, God's fighting for us. Keep quiet. Stop saying your, your complaining things. Like, trust God. And they get through it. The enemies are destroyed. And the people are like, oh, my goodness. God came through. You were right. This is incredible. We're all unified. What a euphoric moment. What a moment of celebration and victory. Like it just, it would just, I got tingles thinking about it, thinking about how wonderful this is. And what you got to remember is these moments don't last very long at all. These moments are so hard to find, are so hard to experience, are so rare, they're so few and far between. Because it just, you just turn the page. You turn the page and we're back to the same problem. As soon as you encounter another problem, everyone's, it's your fault again. That's what happens. That's what happens. So you've got actually the lesson is savor when you have these moments of unity, because unity is so hard. Being connected, having having that 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 victorious sense that God is with us and that God's fighting for us, having that victorious sense is so hard to find. That moments when you see it, cherish it, shout about it, make the most of it, big it big it up because there's gonna be other there's gonna be more times when it's easier to be unhappy with what, what the other things that are happening and not get God's perspective on it. But there still needs to be time of feedback and correction and building one another up. That has to happen as well, and how we do that matters greatly. Now, 
The bigger issue, though, rather than the, the complaining and, and, and the, the, the false way of viewing the situation, is just trusting God. Just trusting God. Are the Hebrews, are they trusting God in this situation? You know, this, is a, this is a human problem that, that we, we see the circumstances in front of us and we say, I, you know, the thoughts we have is, I can see no good way through this. This is not what I want. This is not what I like. I thought God promised other things. You know, I don't want to be the people in the 400 years of enslavement. I want to be the, the people who are in the promised land and all happy and everything's going great and they've got all the milk and honey they need. That's what I want. don't want to go on the journey to get there. I just want to get there. That's a human problem. But it's a, scholars, biblical scholars point out that it's a bigger problem for recently liberated people. So there's a parallel here for us, for all those of us who are believers. You know, we've been saved at some point. We've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness, saved from the, the ways of the world, brought into God's new kingdom that he's building, the new kingdom of God that he's building. Any liberated people, when you're first liberated, there's great rejoicing and, 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 and great joy and a depth to it that you, you realize, like, man, that, that I've really been set free. Like, you get it. You understand it. Like, the enemy's completely dead. They cannot have me back. Now I belong to somebody else. But reality hits pretty hard, and you're faced with a dilemma. Real life is really difficult, and I have all kind of responsibilities and got to take all kind of initiative and all kind of burdens I've got to bear in my life. Think about it like this, actually. I don't know how common this is, but we've all heard of this. People who are released from, from prison, some people will re-offend on purpose because they want to go back to prison because the real world is just too hard to face. I don't know how common that is, but I'm sure you've, I've heard of that before where people will intentionally do that. They'll intentionally commit a crime and get caught on purpose because the real world, they've got to get a job. They've got, to, they've got responsibilities. They've got to pay bills. They've got to do all these things. And being back in prison, they, they, they understand it. They understand the context. They understand they got more, maybe they feel like they got more control or power, even though they actually have less. But for enslaved people, you learn to do what you're told. Enslaved people don't, don't have a voice. They, they have to accept other people's voice. Enslaved people have to work within restrictions and in a confined environment and they're always in fear of their, of their own health and their own life and the, the health and life of, of those that they love being taken from them at any point, being mistreated at any point, being harmed at any point. This is how the thinking goes. You know, thinking goes like, I have no choices before or I, I had no, you know, somebody else owned me, but now that I'm now liberated, I now have to govern my own life. And, and as it relates to the Christian world, you know, Christian belief, you know, I'm, I'm under God's rulership. He rules my life. So my life is, you know, I have to govern my life in, in line with now God's ownership of me. Before I had no choices. I, my choices were extremely restricted. And now I have all kinds of choices. I have to learn how to make those choices wisely. That's a whole different ballgame to navigate. Now, before I had no voice. Now I, I learn I have a voice. What is my voice? And how do I share that constructively and helpfully? Like how, and it's not clear that people have no clue how to do that. They don't know how to share their voice constructively. Anytime we find ourselves complaining and moaning and grumbling, it's because we're still thinking like a slave. We're still thinking that we belong in Egypt. We're still thinking like somebody else should take care of this or somebody else should provide this. or somebody else. We're still thinking those ways and we're not thinking. We're not thinking in ways God's called me now to take great initiative and great ownership, to bear the burden of living in his kingdom 
and building his new kingdom up. It's a whole different way of thinking. A recently liberated person has to make that switch. That's what it means to be a Christian, to make that switch. Say, I'm not, I don't belong to Egypt. I don't belong to the ways of the world anymore. So, you know, the, 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 the deification of, of the state that we live in or the leaders that we have, I don't, I don't worship those things anymore. I, those things are behind me. I now live for God's kingdom and God's rule and God's reign. The escape and the rescue through the Red Sea is a giant metaphor, isn't it? It's a giant metaphor. It's, all, it's judgment, God killing enemies, God setting us free from evil and sin, as well as God redeeming us, and giving us a purpose, and giving us responsibilities, and giving us a calling, giving us things that we're supposed to live into. We're not just people waiting to do nothing. We're people who live in the world that God is making. The people entering the sea and coming out the other side is an exact image of us dying in Christ, Jesus being killed on our behalf, and us resurrecting with him in his resurrection. I said earlier on that it's, they're kind of like parallels, but that they're more than that, that they're joined together. One is a, a foreshadowing of the other one. And actually, it's perfectly symbolized to us in baptism. That's what ba- Baptism is a reenaction of the Red Sea, the escape of the Red Sea. You go down, it's a grave. You go down into the water, and your old life is your old identity, your, your, your enslavement to the things of this world and to Egypt to all the powers of this world, you, you've, you've died to those things, you've been buried in the waters, and then you're coming, you're being drawn out of the waters, you're now alive in Jesus, and you've know, got this brand new identity in Christ. That's what all this imagery means. And it's so powerful because it's a permanent thing. Your enemy is dead on the shore, you can go and see his body, you can harvest his weapons, you can, you can, you can take his clothing, you can, because they're dead, they're, they're, they drowned. God killed them for you. God judged them to set you free. And it's a permanent thing. And it wasn't by any work that you did. Because think about this. What did God do? God sent a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire to stop the Egyptians. This is, this is an image. This is a foreshadowing of the God coming visibly and physically into our world as his son, Jesus Rather than God being a distant, abstract being who you can't see, you just kind of have an idea that maybe he's there. God of the Bible says, no, I come dramatically, visibly, powerfully to show you who I am, to show you the way to be free. It's only in Jesus. It's only in Jesus, the great hero of the Bible, the one who sets us free. And so the, the, the Hebrews complaining is very quickly turned into rejoicing, rejoicing and worship and singing, which is what Mo- the next chapter, Moses sings a song. That's very appropriate. Let's Come on, let's let the band come up. We need to sing because we've been set free. Our enemy is dead and defeated. The old place we used to, that used to brand us and say that they owned us can no longer own us anymore. Now we're owned by God. Now we're slaves to righteousness, slaves to love, slaves to unity, the heart the heart of a Christian now, somebody who follow, has followed Jesus and believes in Jesus, is searching constantly. Their, 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 their affections are drawn towards more the things of God and the, the works of God, saying, I want to make the kingdom of God as real as it can be on earth today. And that happens through the, the deepest change in my own heart. And God has changed me through this gospel of grace, through it being no work of my own, but only by the work of Jesus. Only 
by the work of Jesus. We need to respond. We need to respond. We need to sing at the top of our lungs. We need to shout this great victory. No one else could have done this for us, but God has done this. God has done this on our behalf for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he, he, told, he told us about it. He told the world about it thousands of years ago through the Hebrews being set, set free through, through the Red Sea, through the Sea of Reeds, through the Great Escape, coming through the waters. Waters are you know, a symbol of purification too as well. He's washed away their sins, washed away all their own wrongdoing and transformed them forevermore. If you want prayer, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to get more involved at Trinity, if you want to reach out to us with anything, please respond to us. Please let us know. You can do that by texting the word ENJOY to 94000. It's a powerful way to respond. Take that step today.